Luke's. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Romans 8. Romans 8. We're going to do um, a little bit of review again. And um, I could not move on uh, from the text that we have been working on over the last so many weeks. Uh, James last week preached into the next few verses of Romans 8, but I, I felt from the Lord that there was still a small portion of verses 1 and 2 that we had to touch on. Uh, we couldn't move on from this because it is a world of help, I think, to, to our souls. So Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 is what we're going to be looking at again, again. Uh, so how about this? How about we do a little uh, read and repeat? Um, these are short verses, so I'll, uh, I'll say a few words. You say those same words. We'll do a little bit of read, read and repeat, and we'll get through these two verses fairly quickly. All right, you ready? There is therefore. Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. All right, Lord, we pray your blessing upon your word. Uh, we pray that it would. It would revive our hearts as it promises to do. So make it substantial, make it potent for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have, as you see in the text, we have covered already that particular word, condemnation. If you remember, you should go in your mind's eye to that courtroom setting where that individual who's on the judgment block, so to speak, is sentenced. The judge proclaims guilt, slams his gavel, seals the sentence, and condemnation is a guilty sentence that is now set in motion. All right? This text is saying that for those who know Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Not an ounce, not nothing uh, that you may experience in the future. There is no condemnation, complete acquittal, all forgiven. Even though, even in this walk tomorrow, you'll mess up. Paul is saying, everyone who knows Jesus, there is no condemnation. This is the reality that you live in as a Christian. This is the ongoing blessing that should never get old. There is no condemnation. You stand completely free and forgiven in Jesus. There is no condemnation. But, remember, we also saw that it's the Spirit-led life, the work of the Spirit in our lives, God's Spirit, if you're wondering what Spirit we're talking about, God's Spirit in us begins to evidence the fact that we have no condemnation. If I stand in Christ, if I have no condemnation, I'll know it by the experience of the Holy Spirit in my life. Does that make sense? Let me go to the board. Boom. Here's our verse. Verse 1 to verse 2. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus. And then there is this 
Interesting word, for. For can either refer to the cause of something or the evidence of something. All right? And then the question is, is how do these two phrases relate to one another? There is no condemnation for the law of the Spirit has set us free. Right? The idea is, does this cause us to have no condemnation, or is it the evidence that we have no condemnation? Does that make sense? We went over this with some of the guys on Tuesday a few weeks ago. It, it maybe could be illustrated this way. I, I could say I am hungry because I skipped breakfast. Is that the cause or the evidence? If I skip breakfast, that has caused me to be hungry, right? Now if I say, I'm hungry because my stomach's growling, it's the evidence. Because I'm hungry, now something's happening. My stomach is growling. This phrase here, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. The freedom that you experience in the spirit now is the growling of the stomach to the reality that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. You get it? Because you are in Christ, because you have no condemnation, because you've been fully acquitted of all your guilt before God, you now have the spirit in work in you who's going to evidence the fact that you have no condemnation by the freedom that he continues to work in your life. All right? So the fact that we have no condemnation will be evidence. The stomach is, the spiritual stomach is going to be growling, right? The spirit's going to be active. He's going to be working, evidencing the fact that that salvation is true for you, that you have been fully and wonderfully acquitted, all right? Now, to remember this, though, for us as Christians, it's too easy for us to become spiritually civilized. This incredible reality, no condemnation, can just become old news. Good news can become old news. We can just become spiritually civilized, just going through our normal day, our normal routines. Life just kind of takes over. We do a religious thing on Sunday. We may even have devotions throughout the week, pray a little bit, go through our routines, and there's really no life at work within me. I'm just kind of spiritually flatlined, plateaued. There's something of my spiritual life that is lackluster. I've lost the awe, I've lost the wonder in the amazing salvation that is mine. We can know this. The Spirit will never allow that to happen. When you've kind of just gotten pretty comfortable in the fact, yep, there's no condemnation for you in Jesus. When, when your salvation, if you will, has become pocket-sized, you can just take the reality of your salvation, fold it up, stick it in your pocket, do your thing, and not feel the weight of it at all. It doesn't hinder you at all. It's like, I, I'm, I'm just going to live my life now. Yeah, I've, I've been saved. No condemnation. Wonderful. Uh, let me just do my life. 
We can just take that wonderful salvation, fold it up, and make it a pocket-sized salvation. We become civilized in our spiritual walk. We can know that the evidence of the Holy Spirit will never lead in that kind of way. That is not the evidence of the Spirit. That's the evidence that I got my hands on the wheels of my life. I'm driving. I'm doing it. I'm not allowing the Spirit to actually continue to stir awe and wonder in my heart for all that Jesus is and what he's done for me. He set me free. I have no condemnation. Eternity will be bliss, not torment, because Jesus has done everything for me. That's what the Spirit will be doing. He's always going to be taking you deeper, as we said. Remember the illustration of that ocean floor submarine? Do, 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 going down into the, the ocean of your heart. This is what the Spirit's going to be doing. This is how he's going to be evidencing his work in your life. He's going to shine his light on those little dark critters down on the ocean floor of your heart. The stuff that's wrong, the stuff that's broken, the stuff that's off. He shines his light, but is, does he ever stay there? No. He never just shows you your sin, as great as it might be. He never just shows you your sin. He then shows you your Savior. Right? He reminds you, oh, child of God, there is no condemnation. He'll never just leave you. Ah, just kind of plateaued, surface level. No, he's going to be digging down into the depths of your heart, showing you your brokenness, showing you your ongoing sin, shining the spotlight of his presence upon you, all so then that he can get your eyes upon your Jesus, the one who can bring change and transformation to the broken things of our heart and life. That's what the Spirit will constantly be doing for you as a Christian. You can ignore him. You can take this wonderful salvation, make it pocket size, go live your life. But for those who want to keep in step with him, it's like, all right, Lord, it's okay for you to show me the brokenness in my heart. It's okay for you to go deep, shine your light, and then show me my Savior. That's what he'll be doing for you again and again. Folks, when it comes to the Christian life, I, I don't find myself as less and less of a sinner. <laughs> I don't find myself that way. I, I'm not just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm better and better. I, I, I've got this thing polished. I've, I've got this thing going, man. I, I, I get this Christian life. I don't find myself saying, yeah, I got it all together. More and more what the Spirit is sh showing me is the fine nuances of my brokenness the depths of my heart. So like the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is a trustworthy statement that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I, Paul says, am the foremost. And I don't believe Paul is saying, yeah, it's all the past sin that I did before Jesus showed up in my life. I don't think he's saying, yeah, I persecuted the church, I murdered some Christians, I'm a pretty bad dude. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this journey now in this spirit-led life, I'm, I'm seeing more and more the depths of my sin. I'm seeing the fine nuances of my pride and brokenness. And the spirit is so good to show me the greatness of my sin and then show me the greater glories of my Jesus. I, I, I come to realize I'm the chief of sinners. 
I'm not looking at you. I'm not looking at you. I'm not looking at you saying, well, you know, in comparison, I'm pretty good. No, I'm, I'm with Paul saying, this spirit-led life takes me to the point where I see my brokenness and see my sin. But then how wonderful it is to see my Savior. That's the spirit-led life. That's what Paul is referring here to as this law of the spirit, this principle, this outworking, this power outworking. It's what the spirit does for us. Now, we're still in review. So, you know, for some of you who may not have been following the last so many weeks, uh, notice what Paul also says. He refers to the law of the spirit, and then he also says law of sin and death. You are being freed from this law of sin and death by this law of the spirit. And the question is, what is up with the law? Why, why is he using the, those terms? And it's a way of contrast between really the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you know, you have the first five books of the Bible that are called law. And in those first five books, we have the traditional Ten Commandments, you know, that everyone is familiar with. But then there are 603 other commandments. Uh, so lots of law. A lot of law that God gave his people, right? And so in the Old Testament, that's what you're going to find, a lot of law. But the law of the Old Testament had no power to truly change you. It merely had power to show you you're a sinner. <laughs> you deserve to be on that judgment block. And guilt has a banner written over you. You deserve the judgment. And that's what Paul has been saying, even through earlier parts of the book of Romans. There's no one who's righteous. No, not one. All have fallen short of God's glory. All have fallen short of God's expectations of us, his law of us. But the beauty then of what Paul's getting at here is he's actually saying, yeah, Old Testament law will show you your sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul will say, man, when I am faced with the law, I just recognize that I'm more and more a rebel. Like, whenever you're told, and I tell this to my kids, don't do that. What do they do? They do what I just told them not to do. It's like when the law is laid down, it not only tells me what is right and wrong, and therefore the things that I've done wrong, but it produces in me some sort of like, mm, that, that rebel factor comes out. You tell me not to do it, I'm not want to do it, right? And it's hard to stop myself from wanting to be the rebel that I am shown to be through the law. And Paul then says at the end of Romans chapter 7, a wretched man that I am. He's so frustrated with that dynamic within him because he's known the law, he's walked the law. But he finds himself again and again being guilty of breaking the law. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well... The law of the Spirit sets you free. It's the Spirit who likewise will show you, he'll utilize even God's law, God's way, to say, hey, you're a sinner. <laughs> you're broken, you're in need, but he'll never leave you there, will he? He'll never just leave you on the auction block of condemnation, or on the judgment block of condemnation. Now, what he does is he shows you your brokenness, reminds you that now in Jesus, there is no condemnation. It's acquittal. And therefore, the Christian life being led by this law of the Spirit is ongoing freedom. I'll see in greater depths 
my own sin at work within my heart, but I'll see the greater glories of my Savior. And in my Savior, there is no condemnation. There is constant and, and always forgiveness from him. This is the reality of the Spirit-led life. Um, I do want to show you a text that we've skipped over the last few weeks to, to show you this dynamic. And it's Ezekiel uh, chapter 36. You know, through the Old Testament, there's such frustration. There's failures, 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 failures. Everybody thinks that the next guy whose God seems to be using and working is going to be the answer to all their problems, and they're going to lead us into this great, wonderful release from sin and destruction. But like, you know, King David, he was that hope, but he failed. And then Solomon was that hope, and he failed. And everyone just keeps failing in the Old Testament. But then you get to Ezekiel 36. It's another, it's on the back end of God's people failing once again. And here's the promise that God is always putting before his people. It's incredible. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. You will be one who has no condemnation. Right? You're going to be clean from all your uncleannesses, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the stone uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Do you see? It's like to fade, to just be given law. Don't do that. Oh, I want to do it. And I find myself doing it. And it just reminds me I'm broken. I'm a sinner. But God's promising, I'm going to actually change you from the inside out. I'm not going to make you a rebel anymore. I'm going to make you a child, a son of the living God. I'm going to free you from what you in yourself can't do. Follow the law of God. I'm going to give you a new heart within. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And as he says, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. Right? He is going to empower change in us so that now as the Christian-led life, the spirit-led life gets underway, he's empowering every moment. He's saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and I'll empower you not to. And he reminds us, you're no longer a rebel. You're no longer a rebel. You're a son. Know the love of your father. Live in the light of that, right? And so the Spirit is reminding us of truth and empowering our walk in holiness. You see? And that's why Paul will say, oh, wretched man that I am, man, I could never uh, deal with the law. I could never be holy. But then he then points all his praises to Jesus. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory in Christ. This spirit-led life that is now at work. He's come and changed my heart and life, and now he reminds me of truth, and he empowers this way of holiness in me. He sets me free more and more and more and more. That's the idea of law that's placed here. That's why he's talking about the law of sin and death and law of the spirit. He's showing you, oh, you got something that's amazing. It's the spirit of God who comes into you, transforms you, and leads you in the way everlasting. Now, 
to the point then, once again, that's all review. Um, I promise I won't go long though. Uh, the other phrase in this text that you have to see is this little phrase, in Christ Jesus. You have to sit back and say, okay, what in the world is Paul getting at when he uses this phrase twice? Those who have no condemnation are in Christ. Those who are experiencing this freedom by the Holy Spirit are in Christ. Right Now, it's important to recognize this idea of in Christ is like Paul's way of referring to the full bounty of one's salvation. When they come to faith in Jesus, they, they come into this massive inheritance of salvation. All these various benefits that you get as a son or child of God who's come to faith in Jesus. There's, there's a salvation that is beyond what words can actually explain. And so for Paul, he just says, in Christ. That summarizes all your salvation, that you stand in Christ, right? In other passages of scripture, uh, Jesus, in fact, helps us understand this idea of being in Christ. So let me, let me just name a few. Jesus will say, I've put you on the rock, right? Where your feet were falling, where you had no true stability in life, Jesus will say in a very similar, I've placed you on me, the rock. Jesus will also then, uh, what is it, John 15, he'll say, you're like a branch, and what I've done is I've grafted you into me who is a vine. Now you have life, right? Apart from me, you have no life, but grafted into me, you have life. Or other imagery Paul will use of this, he'll, he'll refer to being adopted into God's family with our uh, two foster boys. That, that, that is imagery with weight and impact because I can't wait for the day when there's no guessing, there's no wondering, you know, is this child gonna be really with us or are they gonna be somewhere else? And even now with Jabari getting older, it's gonna, that's, a, you watch him, you see the emotional weight and turmoil that he's under because he, do, he doesn't know where he ultimately, so to speak, belongs. But adoption, oh, this legal declaration that you Stand, no condemnation, you stand in the family of God. What a freedom, what a, what a relief, what a belonging. I'm not on my own, I'm not astray. No, I belong here. I have a right at the table of God now. Like, I'm in the family. Like, who's, who's showing up for the family dinner, right? I don't have to wonder if I got the invite. I don't have to wonder if I have the legal right to stand there, sit there, no, I belong, right? Now and forever, I belong in the family of God. Paul will say this is all a part of our wonderful uh, salvation in Christ. Now, to, to recognize what Paul is speaking of, there's two components that he highlights in this text, right? He highlights the fact that there is no condemnation, which is a reality of position, right? 
You're on the rock. You're on Jesus. Jesus is the rock of ages. He's taken you out of the sinking sand. He's placed you on the rock of ages. You have now stability of standing for your feet. He now has positioned you into the vine. You have a true place of life in Christ. Or as Paul would say, you have a true seat at the family table. You've been adopted. When Paul says you have no condemnation in Christ, he's speaking of position. You have a legal standing to belong with God. Right? You don't stand apart from him. You stand in Christ. It's a position. No condemnation. You're fully acquitted, fully forgiven. You belong in him. He is yours. You are his now and forever. It's position. But then, Paul says, there's this other thing of freedom. This thing that the Spirit does. He leads us in the way of freedom. This is not position. It's potential. You can resist the Spirit-led life. You can take your salvation, your position... And over time, as Christians often do, just, oh yeah, no condemnation. Yeah, that total, I know it. And, and, and we can take our wonderful salvation and make it pocket-sized salvation, stick it in my mouth, and go live my life. As if there's no weight to the reality of my position. I can just live my life as though there's no great thing that's ever happened to me. The church is renowned for this. I don't know why people would even want to show up through those doors if Christians are just living with a pocket-sized salvation. If they are kind of lackluster in their faith, like, I don't want to even be a part of that. I don't want to live this Christian life if it's just like, oh yeah, there's, there's nothing much here to grow in. There's not much awe to be had. There's not much glory to be realized. Don't give me that. I don't want that. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, you have a position. It'll never change. Tomorrow, this position is yours. You didn't, you didn't secure it. Jesus did. It's not on you. It's on Jesus. You can never lose it. You can never reject it. You can never step outside of it. It is always yours. It's amazing. When you, when you wake up tomorrow morning... And for whatever reason, you still have faith in Jesus? That's a miracle. That's a miracle. You don't do that on your own. You don't, you don't wake up tomorrow morning saying, yep, I believe. It's not because of you. It's because of him. It's because your position is secure in him that you would have belief tomorrow. This will never change 10,000 millennia into eternity this will always be true. You can't run from it. You can't jump out of it. It's always true. But the potential of actually living out what he's given you in his salvation is a whole nother story. If you've ever kind of been out in the woods, you know, and you've walked under the broad reaching arms of an oak tree 
And there on the ground, as you're walking through, there's the acorn. You pick this thing up, and it's like, how did this thing become that thing? It's incredible. How is it that in this little acorn, this massive structure has, was like somehow diffused down into this little acorn? Right? How did this, this acorn become that incredible thing? Folks, when it comes down to it, the acorn, if you will, of our position in Christ should lead us to the potential of the oak tree. Does that make sense? There is so much in this that in this life you get to experience, you get to grow in, you get to pursue, you get to go after. There's far more grace and calling on your life than you probably ever think possible. And by the way, this goes along with all the illustrations that I gave earlier. The rock. Remember the, the story of the rock? Jesus says, I've taken you out of the sinking sand, I've placed you on the rock. Do you know what he says next? He says you better dig down deep. Make sure your life is secure in me so that when the storms come and the floods rise, you can stand sustained in me. That's part of the oak tree. There's potential. If you're not digging down deep in Jesus, man, those storms, you'll feel them. It's almost like you won't lose the rock, but you'll still get crushed. You'll get crushed under the weight of the storms of life rather than growing in all the potential that God has for you in this salvation. From the acorn to the oak tree. Jesus will also say, I've joined you into me, the vine. You're the branch, I've joined you into me. You now have life. But you know what he says next? Abide in me. You got work to do. And in abiding, be fruitful. Right? Bear kingdom fruit. You can't do it apart from me. Nothing you can do, you can do apart from me. No, you need me, but now you need to be, he even says, pray to the Father that you might be fruitful in kingdom things. Be fruitful. So, same thing. There's a position, he's brought you into the vine, but there's potential yet to be had. Same thing when it comes to adoption. You may be adopted into the vine, or in, in, into Christ, into God, you know. That's uh, later on in chapter 8. You've not been given the spirit of fear, right? But you've been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, right? That's activity. That's going from position to now reaching out to Abba. And in context, it's suffering. What are you doing in suffering? Well, you can just kind of stand there, oh yeah, I'm... I'm I'm in Christ, I got this pocket-sized salvation, and I do nothing with it. And just endure the sufferings. Or, you can cry out, Abba, Father. Run to Him. Grow in relationship with Him. Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Like, really go after Him. Yes, you have an acorn position, but there's a potential of an oak tree. And folks, I want you to know, in this church, in this church family, there is more potential than you ever give yourself credit for. As we prayed on Friday night, I believe that there are pastors 
in this church family that are yet to be called pastors. There's callings upon your lives that need to be discerned and walked out, pursued and explored, right? There's graces upon your lives, gifting upon your lives that God wants to use for his kingdom purposes, right? By the way, this is, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul in other writing is just, you see, you see his zeal and his urgency, specifically in the book of Ephesians. He's just, he prays in his writing. All that you church would know the power that is in you so that you might fill all in all with Christ. Or in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he'll pray, oh, that you would know the love of Christ, that the Spirit would do this work in you, this engineering work in you to fortify your hearts, to receive the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And then he, he prays, oh, that, man, you might do things well beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. You see, Paul could see in other people the potential. He knew that they were in Christ. He knew that they were saved. Great, wonderful, we praise God for that. But oftentimes, although we stand in Christ, we don't see the potential of the oak tree. We don't see the grace upon our lives. We don't see the gifting upon our lives. We don't see... God's calling upon our lives, right? And so, as a church, this is why it is so important that we would encourage one another in these things. That we wouldn't just, you know, um, we have to be careful of, we have to be careful of, of putting a bar out there like, you know, like the title of pastor, right? Oh, the, the oak tree is only a true oak tree if you have a, carry a title. No, 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 no. That's not the stuff that we're thinking. The idea of kingdom work can be all kinds of other things. From the purity of our hearts and walking out holiness to, man, it might be just you have a profound and unique love for single moms. And you have a grace upon your life to care for them and tend to them. Maybe it's young children. God's put a love in you for young children, and it, it's like it hasn't even necessarily been cultivated yet. You don't even know that it's there, but you start volunteering upstairs, or you start hanging out with some friends who need some, some help watching their kids, and all of a sudden you see God doing something in your heart as it relates to children's ministry. There's a grace, there's a calling on your life that needs to be explored. There's potential yet to be known, kingdom potential. And I, I do want to say, like, God doesn't work in small amounts. You are special to him. You are his child. He's done great and amazing things for you through his son, Jesus Christ, that has purchased for you your position in him, but also your potential. That was all bought at the cross for you. He's gone to the greatest extent for you. And if you know the parable of the talents... It's like the, the king has his, his guys, and he comes to him and says, I'm going to be going on a journey. Here's some resources. Gives one to one guy, one more to the, and another guy. And he's like, all right, do well with the resources I've given you. 
I'll be back soon. He goes on his journey, and the one guy's like, man, I don't want to lose out on this. And so for fear, he digs a hole and puts it down in there. No one's going to touch this. I'm going to keep it secure for the king when he returns. The other guy's like, I can make some money with this thing. So let's try a few things. We'll do some investments. We'll, we'll, we'll get a greater return. So when the king comes, man, he'll, he'll be happy. And the third guy, man, he's even more so. He's like, it's all in to investments. I'm going to get some solid interest on this until the king comes back. So the king comes back down the line and goes to the first guy. He said, what, what do you got? Well, I got the amount that you gave me. I just kept what you gave me secure. Mm. Goes to the next guy. Yeah, I got some interest. Well done. The other guy's like, I double tripled what you gave me. Well done, right? And then he takes, he takes what this guy had and he says, here, you, you do something with this. There is potential for each of you. There are resources, gifting, grace that God's put upon your life. Yes, you can say there is no condemnation. What a great salvation. You can sing all the songs that we sang earlier and yet be doing nothing for kingdom impact. Pocket-sized salvation. I can show up, sing the songs, but hey, man, pack that little salvation up and go live my life the way I want to live it, never even thinking as to the call that might be upon my life the grace that might be upon my life, the greater degrees of freedom that I get to live in. Just yesterday, as we watched that documentary, one of the verses that came up was from Matthew chapter 16. If you hold on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will gain life. The more and more that you seek, okay, Lord, I want to know the calling, the graces on my life. I want to walk in holiness. I want to go deeper. I'm not just going to play this kind of compromised Christian life where it's like, yeah, I can have my sin and my Jesus too. No. He, he wants you to see all that he has planned for you, but you can reject it. You can get in the way of it. You cannot fulfill all that he has for you. That's possible. So the call then, folks, is to ensure that the acorn of our position results in the oak tree of our potential in Christ. Now, I'm going to do this fast, I promise. Five common obstacles that keep you from your potential in Christ. Ready? We're going to go through them quick. Five common obstacles that get in the way of you actually pursuing your potential in Christ. The first is the religious Christian. It's the one who goes through the motion, who does the right things apart from intimacy with Christ. It's that pocket-sized salvation. You go through all the normal stuff here, maybe even show up in men's group, show up to a small group, whatever, but really there's no true growth. There's no true pursuit of God. There's no true sense of, oh man, there's more for me. There's more freedom that I need to know. No, it's just you're living in that pocket-sized salvation. That's religious Christianity. Uh, oftentimes with religious Christians, you're more focused on the obligations of doing Christian things than on the privilege of living out one's potential that has been won in Christ. Second, then, is the critical Christian. It's the one who can only see what's imperfect in everybody else. What's imperfect in the church, what's imperfect in my Christian friends, what's imperfect in the pastor, can only see what's imperfect 
It takes no spiritual anything to be a critic. You need no spiritual eyes for it. But you do need spiritual eyes to see what God is doing. Criticism is often an excuse for active faith. The critic points the finger at everyone else and everything else so as to excuse themselves from having to do anything. Criticism, and I could just go on with this, <laughs> gotta be careful. Criticism is the enemy to Thanksgiving. And true, humble Thanksgiving is the atmosphere, it is the context in which God will manifest his presence and actually see something of the potential that he's placed in you realized. It begins with humble thanksgiving. All right, third, the compromised Christian. You may come to church saying, oh man, I want this. I want that potential. Right? And then you just go home and you go back to doing just whatever stuff you do. Maybe, maybe you're, you know, may, maybe it's that you're watching things on your phone when you shouldn't be watching them. You know, it's kind of like, I know Jesus is here and I'll go to church here, but then I'm, I have this thing that's taken me away. I'm holding on to my life in some sense. Rather than saying, Jesus, this is yours. What I place my eyes on, what I give my attention to is not my own, it is yours. The compromised Christian says, no, I'm going to kind of like have one foot in one world, another foot in the Jesus world. It doesn't work. You won't grow. You won't fulfill your calling. You won't fulfill your potential in Christ. You won't know freedom in greater measure if you don't take the things that are holding you down and actually surrender them to the King of Kings. It's the compromised Christian. It'll keep you from actual growth and potential in godliness. Fourth, then, is the calculated Christian. You're the, you're the person who analyzes everything. Analysis paralysis, right? If, which is really just a need for control. And your control can never produce the potential that is in Christ. The difference between over-analysis and biblical wisdom, right, is that biblical wisdom has a ton of room for biblical faith. Catch that? Analysis is important, right? That's biblical wisdom will say, hey, weigh things, consider things, go get counsel from others. Yes, 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 do that, do that. But then God gets the final say. That's biblical wisdom. Trust not in your own understanding, but him. Right? We trust in him so that even when all circumstances say, don't do this, God can say, do this. And that changes everything. Right? Even by what we watched yesterday. It's like, here's this guy. He's taking his family into war-torn countries. If we were going to analyze that, Bad idea, bad idea, bad idea, really bad idea. This is just an awful idea. Don't do that. But God says do it. Biblical faith always can override analysis. The calculated Christian, if you're just going to stay with what you can calculate, pros and cons of everything, you will never grow in your potential because it will never require faith. 
It'll never require risk. It'll never require something of surrender and sacrifice. You can always argue your way out of doing things for God. The calculated Christian. Finally, the offended Christian. Folks, you can't receive the grace of forgiveness. You can't know the grace of freedom until you give up your offenses to Jesus. Another way of saying it, if you are, if you have been made new in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are in union with him, as Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. Right? So, if that's you, you are in Christ, who owns your offenses? Christ. Glad someone said it. Christ owns your offenses. I don't know about you, but when I'm offended by someone else, that is deeply personalized. And it becomes me against them. You will never know the freedom. You will never know the potential that Christ has for you. Offense will always weigh you down from your potential in Christ. Folks, as those who have been brought into union with Christ, your offenses are no longer just yours. They are his. They are his. Refer to the documentary yesterday. When you're out there trying to love on people, save them from the clutches of ISIS, and you have saved them, and then in moments you turn and ISIS kills that family, you sit back and say, I've been offended. I'm offended by that evil, and the guy said, we're gonna go kill ISIS. Forget loving people, forget helping people, we're gonna go kill them. And God had to teach that guy a lesson, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He knows your offenses. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what that person said. He knows what that person did to you. He knows the abuses that you've carried. He knows the brokenness that you carry because of that. But those things will oftentimes get in the way of the potential that God has for you. We put God on trial for all the offenses rather than saying, Jesus, come in and help me. Let me see that, yes, I'm in union with you, and because I'm in union with you and I don't stand alone in my offenses, I stand in Christ. And with Christ, he now shoulders those offenses as the one who knows offense himself. He was stripped naked and hung upon that cross for you. He knows offense. He knows how to shoulder it with you. This is one of the greatest obstacles to folks fulfilling their potential in Christ. I'm offended. I'm offended. But you don't know what my dad said to me. You don't know what my dad did to me. Jesus does. You don't know the hurt that I carry. Jesus does. That's his hurt. Don't own it. 
he will be the one who brings vengeance. You can't bring justice to your life. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't make things right. <laughs> he will one day do that. He'll one day do it to the point where you are just so satisfied. Perfect justice, not just, not just vengeance, not just getting back at ISIS for the things that they've done, not just killing them because they killed someone else. It'll be perfect justice. You'll say, man, this, this is satisfying. I'm good with my Jesus because he satisfied all the injustices that I've suffered. Don't own your offenses. Only with Jesus. Only with Jesus. Take them to Jesus. Lay them at his feet. Say, Jesus, let's suffer this together. Fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's what Paul would say. Take your offenses to the cross. These are the obstacles. Then just finally, um, you know, you, you prepare uh, for Sundays and, and whatnot, and God orchestrates things. Sometimes he wakes you up in the middle of the night to read a psalm. Um, this, this past so many months, um, it was like whatever I was reading or whatever I was watching always had this guy's name coming up, Brian Brent. I was like, who in the world is this Brian Brent? Everybody's talking about him. And I'm like, I don't even know. I have no clue who this guy is. But he passed away a few months ago, a month ago now. Um, and everyone was testifying to just how incredibly, you know, he walked out his potential in Christ. It's a man who laid down his life, didn't hold on to anything. And so it was just uh, a few days ago that um, I, I went back and watched his memorial service. I don't know the guy, but everyone's saying, hey, you should watch his memorial service. Okay, whatever. I'll, I'll watch his memorial service because it seems like God just keeps highlighting this guy's name. Uh, so I went and watched his memorial service. Three of his kids get up, and they have story after story after story saying, my my dad saw in me what I never saw in myself. My dad saw in me what I never saw in myself. So the one, the one son says, he saw in me that I was gifted. I had a calling on my life for music. And so what does he do? He doesn't have money. He's a missionary salary. And so what does his dad do? But he, he, he pulls a computer up to, to, to his son and goes to Amazon and, and then slaps the credit card down and says, buy anything you need for musical equipment. Because there's a calling on your life for this stuff. There's a grace upon your life for music. You're supposed to use this for Jesus. He saw in his son what his son didn't see in himself. And then the daughter, she came up. She, would, she said the same thing. He saw in me what I didn't see in myself. And he kept on encouraging out. It was almost like encouraging the potential that was there. Just calling for the oak tree to come, grow, 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 right? I'm, I'm in studying this and then watching that, I'm just like in tears as these kids. It made me, it challenged me with my own kids. Am I encouraging the best that God has placed in them? Am I, am I asking God, what is the calling that you've placed upon their hearts and lives, and how can, I, how can I get behind that to ensure that that potential is realized for the glory of Christ? 
rather than them just saying, yeah, we grew up going to church. That was nice, you know, but now I'm just living my own life, doing my own thing, having no sense of weight to the glory that I carry in Jesus. Folks, there's a world of potential. There's a world of potential for each one of us. Doesn't mean that it's going to result in titles and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be love, love displayed in glorious ways, in various ways, through all that Christ has placed in you. There is a position in Acorn. There's the potential of an oak tree. Let's pray. Lord, we pray even right now that you would protect our hearts and minds from even sensationalizing this dynamic. Not everyone is to be a missionary. Not everyone's to go to Burma. Not everyone is to save those who are on a deathbed. Not everyone is to go off and do some kind of crazy mission, but we are all called to some level of love. We are all called to kingdom mission and ministry. And Lord, thank you that you have hardwired us in Christ for various missions, various tasks, various things that much glory would be brought to you and much of your kingdom would be realized then in greater measure. Lord, let us not live with pocket-sized salvation. We want to feel the weight and the glory of all that you are and all that you've done and walk out the callings, the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in, to know in greater depth the freedom that is ours, greater depth the holiness that is ours, greater depth even the mission that is ours. So Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us as a church grow in the things of you not look back, not look back like Lot's wife. We do not want to look back on this world and think, oh man, look what we're losing out on. We want eyes kept on you and all that you have for us. We don't want to hold on to this life. We don't want to second guess our pursuit of you, Lord. We want to go full in, surrendering everything so that we might see you fully glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we sing a final song, we actually have things backwards here. Uh, communion is in the back. Um, two tables back there. Uh, what I'd like us to do is just take communion on our own, um, grab the, the elements, take it to your seat, and once again, what, you know, some of you say, what, what exactly is communion? Communion is, is an anniversary where we're remembering that time in which God said, you're mine. There's no condemnation for you. I've saved you. I've made you mine. I've forgiven you of all your sins. And this is time to just go back to that place and say, Jesus, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood for me. So this is for those who know Jesus. If you're like on the fence with Jesus and not sure and religiously like, eh, I don't even know that he's real or all that kind of stuff, just slow down. I'd encourage you not to take this. Um, this is for those who've trusted in Jesus and actually have an anniversary to celebrate. If you're celebrating an anniversary without having been wed to Christ, that's going to create more confusion in your life than you know. 
So it's for those who know Jesus and have known the forgiveness of sins uh, that he's made possible for you. So let's go ahead and grab communion and then come back to your seat. Go ahead and take those elements on your own and we'll sing a final song together. Go ahead and take those on your own, the elements there. Remember, remember, this is an anniversary. You're taking in something, and it's important that you would know that. You're taking in Christ. This is all representative of being in Jesus. I am in him, I am in him, and I'm celebrating it, and I'm remembering it again. But don't you take it in without being reminded of the potential. It's potential. There's life if you will, that you're taking in. This is why Jesus has us do crackers and juice. You're taking it in. Just as food would give life to your soul, so I'm being reminded it's Jesus who gives life to me. He is the one who set a course for me. He set good works before me. He's placed a calling upon my life. He's placed gifts and grace upon my life to be utilized for his kingdom purposes. As you take this in, do not forget, do not forget the life that is yours in him, the potential that he has given you to walk in. Let it be a moment of surrender. Let it be a moment of surrender to him. Jesus, take all of me. Work, work out all your graces through me. Let me blossom into an oak of righteousness for your sake.